SOS Radio On Demand. It changed my heart. On Demand. It changes your life. Thanks for downloading Scott Harold's podcast. So what if it's true? What if the claims that Jesus makes are genuinely true and we've just been too hard-headed to actually see it? We're talking with best-selling author Charles Martin today at SWS Radio. Charles, what if every single word in the Bible was actually true and we could believe it? Like, What have you learned about how the words of Jesus literally turn the world upside down? All right, I'm sitting at my desk one day, and I don't know, I'm in the middle of working on a novel, and in the, the other half of my head, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about characters and story and arc and all that sort of stuff. And the flip side of my head is having a conversation with the Lord about something I'm teaching. And I don't know, if I'm honest, I think it was Matthew 10, 8, where Jesus says, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, preach the word, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead. And I thought to myself, Lord, if your word is really true, like everything from in the beginning to amen, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, if it's really true, when I'm reading your words, it ought to shake some stuff loose in me, and I'm thinking my life ought to look differently. I do not have the monopoly on obedience. I don't do it right all the time. I mean, I'm just being honest. If I look at your word and what it says, I'm not. And so I just really began wrestling with, okay, let me change my perspective, and let me look at this as having come from, every word having come from the mouth of God, and I can trust it with my life, like I can trust it with all of me. And I just take it as true, at face value as true. It just means what it means. It means today what it meant when he said it 2,000 years ago or 3,500 years ago or whatever. It just means what it means. What if I just did that? I know it's wild because we think about the Bible as this holy book. Like if we didn't really read through it, we would probably think based on what we're hearing in culture that it was written like straight through, but it's more like a library and it's a collection of stories. And Charles, you're a storyteller and you like to dig in and retell these stories and dig into the characters and the settings so that we can really see what the disciples were walking through. One of the things I did, I'm trying to bring whatever talent the Lord has given me. Let's assume for a minute he's given me some sort of talent as a as a storyteller. Okay, so I come at Scripture, and I'm like, Lord, would you allow me to try and write the stories of what happened in this day and age with you? Would you allow me to try and do that with the talent you've given me as a story writer? Now, I also know that Scripture is really clear, and that Jesus is really clear. It's really bad for folks who come along and add to His Word. So I come at it with real fear and trembling, like, Lord, I'm going to try and figure out as much as I can about the context and about what you're saying in those moments and what's happening while being faithful and true to that without adding to it. The first example I can give you would be the woman with the issue of blood. And I tell this, and what if it's true? I try and tell it with as much as I understand about her situation and kind of what leads her up to that place with Jesus. I mean, she's a total outcast. I mean, it's implausible that she would think that she had the right to get close to him because she's unclean from the beginning. So I try and tell that story as best I can, along with the fact that you've got Jay Roos, the leader of the temple, you know, pulling on Jesus saying, come help me. So that's one story. The second that I sort of, I think sort of stretches my limits as a storyteller a little bit is when I come back and they turn the world upside down, I start back at the crucifixion. And I'd always heard when the soldier takes the sponge and puts it on a stick and puts it in Jesus' mouth, I'd heard one of two versions of that. One, Jesus obviously says, I thirst, so he's giving him something to drink. Maybe it's mercy. Or two, he's shoving just vinegar in his mouth and continuing to mock him. Well, I didn't really understand the context of that, but as I studied it, this is what I came to understand. The Roman army at the time was the largest army in the world. 
an army that large has to be fed. A fed army has to go to the bathroom. And when you have that many soldiers in close proximity doing that that much, sanitary concerns come into play. And the way that the Romans dealt with the need for sanitation was giving each soldier not only a sword, a spear, and a shield, but sticks with sponges on them and jars of vinegar with which they instructed them to clean their backside. So when you see Jesus on the cross and the soldier dip the sponge in the vinegar and shove it in the mouth of Jesus, I think he's continuing to just mock him and shove feces-laced vinegar in the mouth of my king. You know, it's Valentine's week, and the English language really only has one word for love, but in the Greek language, there's like seven different words for it. We're actually talking with best-selling author Charles Martin today at SWS Radio. Charles, when you dig through the stories of Jesus in the New Testament of the Bible, and you start to understand his interaction with the disciples, you start to see Jesus using different words to describe true love. It's in the context of Jesus restoring Peter. Peter is, you know, the loud mouth. I call him the linebacker of the apostles. Anytime there's a chance for somebody to speak up, he's going to open his mouth. And most of the time, he's going to stick his foot in it. And as Jesus goes to the cross, we know Peter denies him. And last time he denies him is around a charcoal fire talking with a slave girl while his best friend is being whipped. And as, as Isaiah would said, he becomes unrecognizable as a man. So what happens to Peter is he denies his best friend three times. He does the very thing he told Jesus he would not. This is after Caesarea Philippi when he tells him, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, you are right, Simon, and upon this rock I'll build my church. So Peter has fallen a long way, and he's riddled with shame, and he returns to his former life. And to notice in that he's no longer following Jesus. He's now in a boat fishing with all his buddies because he doesn't know what to do, and he doesn't feel worthy to keep following Jesus because he denied him. So he's in the Galilee they see Jesus on the beach, a little town called Tabaka. You can go there today. It's on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus builds a charcoal fire. Peter sees him, puts on his cloak, which is interesting, a man diving in the water, covering up, jumps in, swims to Jesus. Notice also he doesn't say, tell me to come to you and walk. He doesn't feel worthy. He lands on the beach. He sees the fire. I think cold water probably trickles through his veins. <laughs> and I think Peter is riddled with shame. Jesus knows Peter. He loves him. He knows his heart is broken. He's about to restore Peter. He's about to put him back in the lineup, but he knows he's got to do two things. He's got to get rid of his shame, and he's got to call him one more time and say, follow me, because that's what his best friend needs. And I think when you see, you ask me about love, when Jesus sits on the beach with Peter, he asks him three times, do you love me? And there's that wonderful exchange between Jesus saying, one type of love, do you love me sacrificially with your whole heart? And Peter responding, well, of course you know that I love you. And all he's saying is, well, yes, I have affection for you. You know that I like you. I mean, they're using two totally different words because Peter, in his shame, doesn't feel worthy to use the word that Jesus is using because he didn't by his actions. And I think the Lord wraps his arm around him, says it three times just to bring Peter back to that beautiful place. And Peter says, well, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus, in perfect, just grace-filled, just the beauty of the gospel, says, Peter, follow me. And I think it's the biggest and best do-over in the history of do-overs. And Jesus does it all through that word, do you love me? Will you lay down your life for me? I love it. I love that. The reason I love it so much is because it gives folks like you and me hope that when we mess up, you know, for the 10,000th time, Jesus doesn't appear to us with his finger in our chest poking us saying, 
why didn't you and you sorry, all that. No, he doesn't meet us there. He meets us with, my child, I love you. Go and sin no more. Let's just start over. You and me, let's walk. Now follow me. You know, we don't have to clean ourselves up before we reconcile with God, right? We're talking with Charles Martin on SWS Radio. And, you know, Jesus chose 12 guys to be with him during his three-year ministry here on earth. And obviously it's easy to think of these guys as faith giants, right? But they didn't start that way. It was by walking with Jesus and learning with Jesus and seeing the way that Jesus prayed, you know, understanding the power there and finally saying, like, Jesus, when we pray, it's not working like when you pray, like, show us how to do this. <laughs> I think when they walk with Jesus back up the Mount of Olives, I think they think they're just walking up there for one more day because they spent a lot of time with him. The Father's chariot appears, Jesus ascends and returns to the Father. The two angels are sitting there saying, hey, why are you standing there, staring into heaven? He's going to come back in the same way he left. And I think all of those 12 men. And I also think it included all of their wives and children. And if you notice, there are a whole lot of women following Jesus. And matter of fact, Jesus first appears to a woman, Mary, because her heart's broken. So I love the fact that, you know, the Lord loved all of them. And I think all those people walked down that mountain with one, pretty much one question on the tip of their tongues. What on earth do we do now? <laughs> he had given them his authority. He had given them his commands. What they lacked was power. And he told him, go wait in Jerusalem until I send you the comforter of my spirit from on high to empower you to do the things that I've called you to do. And then they walk back into Jerusalem and seven days later, the roof starts to shake and we get Pentecost. And now these folks, just like us, with all their limps and their sin and their baggage and all of their stuff, walk out into the world. And by the time we get to Acts 16 or 17, when Paul and Silas walk into Thessalonica, the Roman officials describe these followers of the way, like you and me, as these are they who've turned the world upside down. Or another translation says, these are they who have upended the inhabited earth. And I think the thing that they did was, one, they saw a dead man live, they loved him, and then they went and did what he said. I just think it was that simple. It's just wild how Jesus just uses normal guys. You know, he didn't go after the educated. He didn't go after the influential. He went after normal guys that were fishermen. I love that about him. Matter of fact, I think if you study the lives of the disciples, the reason they were fishermen is because they weren't the best of the students to start with. I mean, the A students got drafted into the sort of the career path of the rabbi, and they would follow like Paul did with Gamaliel. I mean, they were the A-listers, the ones who, you know, everybody wanted to be. Well, the fact that they're fishermen and tax collectors means they probably did not make the A-list. So they're just a bunch of normal Joes like us. It's wild because disciples, most of them were laborers. They were fishermen. And it's interesting when you study Jesus and he just picks normal roundabout guys that could work as a blacksmith, guys that could load trucks, guys that just like to fish. But he says, hey, follow me. We're actually talking with Charles Martin today at SWS Radio. When Jesus grabbed the disciples and he says, hey, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What do you think these guys were thinking? I don't know that they had any idea. I mean, you know, obviously they come to understand that through their relationship with him. But the thing that every time I read that in scripture, the thing that I'm brought back to is that the call is individual. He didn't scream it out over a group of people. He came up to each one of them. And I believe that's the case for each one of us as well. And But the thing that, that follows that, if our response is to stand up and follow him, then the command is to deny yourself and pick up your cross, 
and follow him. And if that's the case, if we're going to follow Jesus, then there's an execution in our future, something about our will, something about our desires, something about we want. It's going to have to be laid down and crucified at the cross so that we can pick up what he desires for us. This is that daily dying to self thing I think that Paul talks about. So this follow me thing, while we jump to it with eagerness and expectation, which we should, should probably follow pretty closely with this healthy turning the mirror on ourselves and saying, okay, Lord, what about me needs to die today? What about me? Do you want to carve off so it's not baggage and I can just walk with you in lightness of heart? You know, when we read through the Old Testament, we read through the New Testament, sometimes it's almost like you're reading about two different gods. I'm Scott on Eswis Radio. We're talking with Charles Martin. He's a best-selling author, writes a lot of novels as well. But Charles, you know, when you read through the Old Testament and you see the God there, then there's a little more wrath. And then you hear about Jesus in the New Testament and you read the stories. It almost seems like, wait, is the personality of God bipolar or am I just completely missing the message here? Well, the beauty of the new covenant cut with us through the blood of Jesus as compared to the old is that God is unchanging and he's still the same. And the wrath that you see in the Old Testament and the requirements to be made righteous with him, that wrath still exists in the new. And Jesus just drinks that cup of wrath for us and our place so that we don't experience it. So God is unchanging. The sin still requires payment. And we see that the blood of Jesus pays that payment for us. I mean, that's why he is our propitiation. It's the payment that satisfies the just requirement of God so that when God sees us, for those of us who believe and confess Jesus as Lord, when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of his son and not the sin that we bring to the table. So the wrath is the same. The remedy is beautiful, though, in that it is Jesus on the cross shedding his blood for us in ransoming and redeeming mankind, which is us. He takes our place. One of the beautiful things I saw is when Jesus is standing trial, Pilate says, you know, I'll release to you, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? And they say, give us Barabbas. Well, if you look at Barabbas's name, it's Bar Abba, which means son of the father. Well, that's us. That's you and me. While Jesus physically took Barabbas's place, he takes our place before the father. I just loved it. I just love seeing that, the perfection of Scripture and and what the Lord does for us through the gift of His Son in our place. So the wrath is the same. God is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Jesus just drinks that for us, so we don't have to. And when we read through those stories, we start to see the heart of God differently because it's through Jesus. I used to spend a whole lot more time in the New Testament just because it made more sense to me. But as I fell in love with the new, the Lord would routinely take me to the old. And I began to see that the two can't be separated. And the Old Testament is a beautiful revelation of Jesus who is to come, the Messiah who's to come. As we see Jesus in the New Testament, he's the perfect manifestation of that revelation in the old. Even today when I'm when I'm reading it, I love seeing Jesus fulfill completely what was described of him. In the, even when he returns in the upper room, wherever that was in Jerusalem, he returns in the upper room, and it says he walks in the room, they freak out, and he says, receive holy breath. I think, in my opinion, I can't prove this, but in my opinion, Jesus is doing in that room what he does in Genesis 2 or Genesis 3 when God fashions man from the dust of the earth, and then he breathes the breath of God, the ruach of God, 
into his lungs. And that's an individual thing where God literally puts his lips on our nostril and blows into us. Because the word used to describe there, what he does is the same word used to describe a flute player when he places his lips on the mouthpiece of a flute and blows in. And so when Jesus walks in the room after his resurrection and says, receive holy breath, I can't prove it, but I think he goes up to each one and breathes on them. And the new Adam is born on this side of the cross, which is through Jesus. Yeah, that makes me want to go back and read through that story again. We're talking with Charles Martin today at SWIS Radio. He has a new book called They Turn the World Upside Down. It's a storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus. Thanks for spending some time with us today, Charles. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the SOS Radio Podcast with Scott Harold. If this discussion encouraged you, feel free to share it with your friends on social media.